Good morning. You know, a lot of folks would love to uh, give divine authority to their own opinions and thoughts and convictions and passions. And that's why God gave us the revelation. So people cannot use and say, God said this, God says this, and I believe this, and this is what God has given to me. For indeed, Thor has spoken, Odin, Odin has spoken. You know, people have used gods to kind of give credibility to what they think things are going to be good or bad or how they're going to be a reality. And yet, God in the revelation, he, he gave it to us three different ways. He, he spoke to the prophets and gave them the vision of what the future and how God's going to respond to his creation through the prophets. And thus saith the Lord. Uh, he used the priest to speak directly to them. So they would be able to quote, and God has said. And so we have the revelation of the prophets, the revelation of the priests. But we also had a third group, and they were called the sages. And the sages, how God revealed his truth through them, is he caused these wise men and women to be able to observe life, observe his engagement in life. And then God gave them the insight the authoritative insight to see the truth by observation. And thus they were called a sage. And thus saith the Lord God. I have had the privilege to introduce to you to one of these sages, Solomon himself. And Solomon writes his personal journal. It's called Ecclesiastes, Kohelet. But this is Solomon after he's lived his life. He's most likely in his 70s. And he's reflecting on what he has learned, what he's observed with the double portion of wisdom that God had given him even as a youth. And so here's his personal journal. And as I've introduced this book to you, you know, it begins with vanity, vanity. All is vanity. And you just kind of start with, well, let's just go ahead and cut our throats now. And I know there's one translation, and I still pray God would have them repent, that they translate it, meaningless, meaningless. All is meaningless. The word that Solomon uses is the word Havel. And Havel does not mean meaningless, not even in the list of definitions, except for the last one, meaningless. It's vaporous. I, I, I was told that, that Billy Graham, I think I mentioned to this, I did a TED Talk. I thought, Billy Graham did a TED Talk? And this is when he was just about to turn 80. He had Parkinson's, phlebitis, but, but he did this 28-minute TED Talk. And it was, it was remarkable. What a remarkable man, and what a, what a gift that he's given to us. But, but he was asked the question, he said, on what was the biggest surprise in his life? And his statement was, it's brevity. It's brevity. How quickly, like a vapor, life flies by. And how can you find purpose and significance in something that's moving so quickly? It's like you just kind of figure out how to be 16 and boom, you're 17. And all of a sudden, now you got this puberty thing. Now, I was a late puberter, so <laughs> you know, it took me longer to figure this thing out. I'm still figuring some parts of it out. The point is, is that that's what he starts with. Life is Havel vaporous. It moves by and slips right through our fingers unless we have a certain kind of wisdom on how to extract from this first gift. And the first gift is life itself. And great pain, great memory. So things that hurt us, we focus on. So we begin to think that our life is one big pain. 
But the reality is we begin to acknowledge and look as it flies by every day for that apple, for that thing that's given to us as a blessing, as a gift from the hand of God. And remember, the gifts come, the gifts go. But it's going to take wisdom to extract enjoyment from that gift so you realize it's a gift from God. And remember, how do you do that? What is the wisdom? You acknowledge it's from the hand of God, and he will what? Shalot you. Remember, thanks, shalot. The fact is, he'll empower you to extract his intended enjoyment from that particular gift. We will overshadow the painful other things and the other things that are going by the conveyor belt. So the first thing we wanted to talk about is maybe what if this life is the first gift and God has given it to us to enjoy and it takes wisdom to know and to acknowledge what comes from the hand of God. Acknowledge it with a grateful heart. And see how God will shalat, will empower you to extract such enjoyment so that you go into a situation of contentment. And remember what contentment is? It's not that you don't want to do things. You don't want to go to, to, to Israel in two years. No. All contentment is, is I need no more to enjoy my life. I need no more to enjoy my life. What a freedom. And see, that's the truth that sets you free from the fear that life's going to pass me by and I'm going to miss out for some reason. The second thing we talked about is, yeah, but sometimes life isn't fair. And there's things we just can't figure out about the human nature. Uh, one, one of our uh, women came up to me and said, well, you know, uh, two of my kids in their 20s thought that you said that there's no reason then to pursue truth. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. The point is because you are freed from not having to know what cannot be discovered. When it comes to the human nature, human condition, there's evil. And we think, well, did God create evil if he created everything? Of course not. God created the good and then gave us the free will to extract enjoyment from the good. But most of us have taken that free will, that choice, and we bend the good to pain to evil, to foolishness. And so evil exists, the world's not fair. But that is issued by mankind, not by God. And so we realize, well, why does God let it happen? Why doesn't he just pop those little boogers, you know? Every time they do that, well, of course, this camp would be a lot smaller, wouldn't it, you know, as far as that? And it would have no speaker, by the way. Uh, uh, maybe Ephraim, but I no morning speaker from me. And so why does God permit life to be unfair? First, we got to realize, stop blaming God. But why does he permit it? And Solomon told us yesterday, it is to expose something about us that we need to own up. And what it is, is that we have this natural thought of divinity, self-divinity. That, you know, me, myself, and I, the blessed Trinity, I can handle my life. Not only can I handle my life, some of us think we can handle everybody else's life. And God just wants to expose, man does not make for a very good God. And so we strut around pretending there is no God, and that means we get to be God, and then we bend the good things God has created into evil and pain and misery and suffering. And God permits it so that we can take a real good look Man does not make for a good God. He can't run this world and he can't run his own life. And God does it all, permits it all to draw us to the creator himself, the one who created the good. 
And so there are things in the human nature we're never going to understand. Because we, if you're going to wait till you've resolved everything in human behavior, human nature, humanness, then you're going to be so distracted, you're never going to have time to focus on pursuing truth. And all those things that God has given us to discover and to learn and to pursue truth. Well, this morning we come to the last of the themes of the book, and that's when we want to talk about when the curtain falls. This morning we got up, and Holly seemed a little bit depressed. Honey, what's wrong? Oh, this morning you're going to speak about death. Who wants to hear about death? And I went, oh, Lord, help me. But I told her, don't worry. There's a positive spin to it, so take a breath, all right? But, you know, you start thinking about this thing on, on death. The real question is, don't you want to know how this whole thing ends? You, you see around the grounds uh, the statement of Paul. He says there remains faith, hope, love. Faith is our confidence, what we believe. Love is when it's seen. But hope, nothing works without hope. Because hope is expectation. It is what motivates us because we know there's a future. There's something to look forward to. If there's no hope, if there's no future, the word hopelessness is the word despair. And when you feel despair, it's when you're convinced things will never change. It's always going to be like this. But you see, it's hope that motivates us. And hope comes only when we know there's something in the future that we don't have to be afraid of. And that's why we look to the future with joy. You know, what do people think when they think about death? Most people don't. Now, I, I'm thinking a little bit more about it. You know, when you hear that somebody dies in their 30s, you go, oh, that's tragic. In their 40s, oh, that is so sad. They die in their 50s, oh, they were just getting started. They die in their 60s, oh, they didn't have a chance to finish what they began. They die in their 70s, well, they had a good life. And you know, moving into our 70s now, I'm going, when we kick off, people are going to say, well, they had a good life. And so I'm starting to find myself really interested, how is this thing going to end? Now, most people don't want to think about death because it sounds morbid, like it's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Think about it, and you're going to be dead as a doornail. So keep it off the radar. And yet, Psalm 116, David calls death, God calls death, Precious in the sight of God is the death of his sanctified, his righteous ones. You know, in my 50 years plus of ministry, I've, I've conducted a lot of funeral services. And it's interesting to watch people who come. Because I look at them and they, uh, they look like they want to be a million miles away. You know, you want to go to funeral service? Run! You don't want to go to funeral service and talk about someone who's dead? I mean, the fact is, we don't even call it what it is anymore. Death is called passing away. The dead are called the deceased. You don't talk about a dead person. Yeah, my, my, my folks are dead. Yeah, no, they've passed away. The mortuary is called the chapel of rest. The cemetery is the garden of repose. And everything after that is a sweet by and by. But we're still living in the nasty now and now, wondering about the sweet by and by. Is there anything sweet about it? Remember our friend Bertrand Russell, the atheist philosopher, 
who wrote that little book, Why I'm Not a Christian, well, here is what he had to say about death. Quote, I am not young, and I love life, but I should scorn and shiver with terror at the thought of annihilation. Like in the words of the great theologian Woody Allen, he just basically wrote an article on death, and his thing he called death is absolutely stupefying. He made up a word, stupefying. The 17th century French philosopher Rousseau, he's the one who said, quote, he who pretends to face death without fear is a liar. So that's why we don't talk about it. That's why you're not a lot of fun when you come to our funeral services, no matter how much we try to make it positive. Why do we want to keep it off the radar? Well, maybe we ought to keep it off the radar. But not according to Psalm, Psalm 90. Here, here we're, we're told, Moses writes this Psalm. He says in verse 10, uh, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years. That was about the average age at this time, which really catches my eye. Or if due to strength, 80 years. So if you're 80 or older, you're, you're, hanging, you're doing well. He says, yet their pride, the pride of the years and all that labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we will fly away. We're going to fly away. Don't you remember that old song? I'll fly away. Am I an idiot for singing that song? I mean, fly where? And then he says this in verse 12. Here's the prayer. So teach us to number our days. Why? That we may present to you, God, a heart of wisdom. If I don't take some time and stop playing the game that I'm going to live forever and realize that life is brief. It's going to fly by like a vapor. Life is Havel. And therefore, I want to know how this thing ends. Because if I don't know how it ends, I have no hope. So I have no motivation to get up or do anything of any significance, at least selfishly. And so, so I can present to God a heart of wisdom. He says, the way you do that, Daryl, you will, you will basically consider the days of your life says in Psalm 139, the days that were ordained for me were already established in my mother's womb. But you know, it's not just the number of days, but each day is ordained. There's a purpose and a reason. But who cares if when I'm dead, it's over and the curtain falls. I received a greeting card from a friend. And it read, if you take life one day at a time, those days turn into weeks. And those weeks turn into months. And those months turn into years. And before you know it, you're dead. <laughs> these are the kind of friends I have. They send me these kind of cards. But then I go, and I go to Ecclesiastes. with Solomon, in all your wisdom, what do you have to say about how it's all going to end? And in chapter 9, here's his good news. Verse 2. It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good and for the clean and for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. We have one thing in common. If you're a believer or not, we die. As the swearer is, so it is the one who is afraid to swear. 
This is the evil that all is done under the sun. In his mortal life, the thing to understand and to ponder, it will end. It will end. So verse 4, for whoever is joined with all the living, there is hope. So if you're alive, you, you, you hope. Now here's your, your life verse. You ought to tattoo it somewhere. Surely a live dog is better than a dead lion. That's the way to get up each morning. But what he's saying in a very raw, honest way is, you know, you could be a powerful lion if you're dead. Who cares? You can't do anything. It's better to be a dog, and that was a horrible thing in the days of Solomon. But at least you're alive and you're breathing. Then he says in verse 6, Indeed, their love, their hate, their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have share in all that is done under the sun. This mortal life is over for you. So then, Solomon, what do you conclude from that? He says in the next verse, Go then, eat your bread in happiness. Drink your wine with cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Hello! You just told me I'm going to die like a dead dog. And so what do I do in response to knowing I'm going to die like everybody else? Party! I don't get it. I don't understand what is he talking about. There is nothing happy about death. As a matter of fact, Jesus... Remember in John 11, Jesus, at the death of his friend Lazarus, he what? He wept. He didn't find anything fun about death. So this ancient proverb that Solomon gives us about a dead lion and a live dog, does he mean that with my death, my life is over? Cashed in? I mean, they stick us in a hole and we feed the flowers. And a cow comes along and eats the flowers. And we eat the cow. And we live. And we die. And they put us in a hole. And we feed the flowers. And the cow comes along and eats the flowers. And then we eat the cow. And we live. And we die. And they put us in a hole. In other words, are we just fancy manure? Is it like we come, we go, and basically your flower bed will look nicer if you crawl in there? <laughs> or is, there, see, is he saying something else? The sentence of life doesn't end with a period. And that's the question. When that final coffin nail is hammered in, are you over? And if you are over, and that's the hope, then why? Why do anything? Why get up in the morning? Why labor? Why work? Why do anything? What would motivate you if you know when it is done, you are done, finished, and it's gone? I mean, even Jesus said in John 9, 4, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. Yeah, Jesus, but why work? If when I'm dead and my mortal life is over, I'm gone. This brings up an interesting issue. I was raised Southern Baptist. Had the hell scare out of me every week. But I remember I was raised Southern Baptist and, and I remember they talk about rewards. You work hard because you get rewards. Well, what are the rewards? I was a bit precocious. Don't be surprised as a little kid. So I want to know what's in it for me. We call it the whiffing principle. What's in it for me? Well, you get crowns. You get hats. 
they must be just great hats. But, but, but then I study the book of Revelation years later, and I see we got to give all the hats back. We, we, we cast the crowns at the feet of Jesus. Great, what an Indian giver. And, and so I get confused on what are these rewards? And as over the years I've studied scripture, I found that God motivates us in three different ways. He, he motivates us out of his love. And so because God so loves us, we're moved to serve him and honor him. He also motivates us by judgment, the threat of punishment out of rebellion. And so we're moved to honor the heavenly father as judge. But you know predominantly throughout the whole scripture how God motivates his people? It's not by love. It's not by threat of judgment. It's by rewards. Rewards. Interesting. 2 Timothy 2.12. Paul says, even when we're faithless, he's faithful and we shall reign with Christ. Whoa, 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 whoa. What's this we shall reign with Christ. You know, 1 Corinthians 6, there's a strange, uh, the Corinthians are really a dodo church. And the whole book is correction. And in chapter 6, he deals with the issue, they're suing each other, embarrassing Jesus Christ. And, he, and Paul says in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, stop suing each other. Don't you know, don't you have anybody among you who can make judgment between you? For you're going to judge the nations. You're going to judge the angels. You're going to be assisted by angels in judging and ruling nations. Now you go, what have you been smoking? What in the world could he be talking about? But then as you continue to study the writings of Paul, you find some fascinating things. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says, according to the grace which has been given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And another is building on it. You. But each man, each woman must be careful how he builds. Why? Because when I'm dead, I'm gone. There's nothing to look forward to. So why should I even care? But Paul goes on. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. You put fire to gold, silver, precious stones, they remain. You put fire to wood, hay, straw, it's gone. Well, how do you know what's the difference of these things? Anything I do to honor myself is wood, hay, straw. And God doesn't double dip. So if you say something nice to me, thank you. That means I don't get to hear it from Jesus. In other words, we get our some rewards on this earth. And that's it. You got it. But there's some things you do that are usually honoring God. And you don't get the reward, he says. Those things will be evaluated and will remain. Remain for what? Keep reading. If any man's work which he has built on remains, he shall receive a reward. But if any man's burn up, uh, he will suffer loss. Not himself, he shall be saved by the hair of his chinny, chin, chin, yet as through fire. But he says there's going to be a, what, what reward? What do we get this reward? Well, apparently somebody asked him because when he writes his second letter in 2 Corinthians 5, he, he, he makes this statement, which is fascinating. Verse 10, 
For we must all appear before the bematos of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ. I thought we're not supposed to be judged. Paul said there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He starts chapter 8 of Romans that way. What's this bematos, judgment seat of Christ? That's the one in, when they had the old ancient Olympics and you run the race and you win the race, you get a little piece of weed on your head, but that's not the real cool deal for the rest of your life. You get an apartment, but you also get as a reward this eternal stipend of funds. And guess from where you got that reward? From one sitting on the bematos. For we must all appear before the judgment seat, the bematos of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. Whoa, that's in this mortal life, under the sun. Now, he says, according to what I have done, whether it's good or it's bad. So there's going to be some kind of reward, and reward's not hats, the reward has something to do with reigning with Christ. Remember Luke chapter 19? Jesus tells a story that he calls the slaves together. Ten of them come. He gives them each ten minas. Minas about like a three-month wage. And he sends them out, and I love it. You businessmen, love this. Jesus says in Luke 19, go and do business. So don't think for a second because you're a businessman, a businesswoman, to something in spiritual. You got more clarity, biblical basis than I do. So he says, go do business. So they go do business. So one guy comes back and says, Well, what profit? What'd you do? Well, hey, I, I, I made 10 minas for you. And so the Lord says, Faithful and little, faithful and much. Boom. You're going to be over 10 cities. Next guy comes, five minas. Okay, good. Faithful and little, faithful and much. Five cities. But then the old conservative guy comes and says, well, you know, I know you're kind of a taskmaster, so I, I took the one and I put it in the dirt. And here it is back. And I love what Jesus says. This is Jesus. He says, you could have put it in the bank and get interest. Boy, that sounds so unspiritual. Jesus, I can't believe. Every once in a while, he spurts out something really unspiritual. He says, you could have put it in the bank. Get some interest. And he takes it away. And the phrase in Luke 19, the theme is faithful in little, faithful in much. If you're faithful in what God has commanded you to do in this life, he's going to be able to trust you to be faithful when he gives you much. You want to know what this life is, folks? This is us building a resume. We are building resumes that will be evaluated at the Bematos and we will receive our assignments and for the new heavens and the new earth and reign with Christ. You're making that up, Daryl. No. John said it in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, he who overcomes, I'll grant him to sit down with me on my throne. And I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Chapter 5, verse 10. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth with Christ. Chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part 
in the first resurrection, over these the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. He'll repeat that phrase, for a thousand years, which is a Hebrew way of a long time. And you know how the book of Revelation ends? See, I believe Revelation 21, 22 are the first two chapters of the next Bible. Do you think God, who's eternal, and what was the first thing God wanted us to know about himself when God introduced? He goes, hi, look around. I created all of it. In the beginning, God created the If that's the first attribute of God, he wanted us to know. What do you think he's been doing from eternity past? Of course he's been creating. You mean beings? Yeah, we call them angelos, angels. Six wing, four wing, two wing, no wing. Names, presbyteros, zoe. We have no idea, pre-Genesis 1-1, all that God was involved in. But we do know this, they've all been engaged in this dimension, in this creation, and apparently we're going to be involved in the next one. Do you think God's going to stop creating? He's going to say, okay, I'm going to retire. God doesn't retire. And here in the last chapter, listen to what it says. Here's the final promise of the scriptures. Revelation 22, verse 5. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have the need for the light of a, uh, of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. This is more than a thousand years. You say, yeah, maybe he kind of made them. A... No, no, just in case you didn't get it the first time, he says it again, verse 12. Behold, now we know these are the words of Jesus because they're in red right here. And Jesus says, behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward, after I look at your resume, is with me to render to every man and woman according to what they have done. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That's your hope. And so there's this reward thing going on. Yeah, but how do I get to this place of getting a reward? Well, Solomon ends basically this book of his personal journal as we bring this to a close. And it's interesting the way he closes it because it's kind of a little bit depressing. Because after describing what it's like to get older, in chapter 12, he says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. So he's talking to those of you who are young. He says, remember this. Before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. How many of you over 70 sometimes wake up in the morning and says, I have no delight in getting up? Aging is not fun. Like they say, aging is not for sissies. He says, before the sun and the light, the moon, the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. Usually after the rain, you look forward to the sun coming. It's going to be great. The rain's over. And you get older, it says, no, there's going to be more dark clouds. It just doesn't get better. You know, next time you see me, I'm not going to be better. I'll get worse and worse and worse. How so? Well, in the day that the watchmen of the home uh, tremble, my arms, I'm going to have weakness. Mighty men will stoop. Oh, good. I'm going to have a great back. Uh, grinding ones will stand idle, man. I got them all. 
but they're not going to be there for long. And those who look through windows grow dim. Boy, will I have thicker glasses. And the doors on the streets are shut. As a, What was that? What, 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 what? Yeah, won't be able to hear. The grinding mill is low. Oh, music sound. Turn it up. And the one arises at the sound of a bird. What, what was that? What was that? And all the daughters of song will sing softly. Would you please speak up a little bit more so I could hear you? Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place of tears. Oh, my. I could really hurt myself there. The almond tree blossoms. Ah, oh, almond trees, these would be beautiful, pink. But when they mature, guess what color they become? Yeah, yeah, see it turning white. Grasshopper drags himself along. Oh, this is going to be great, you know. The capybara is ineffective. We won't go there. He says, for man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. So there it is. That's what you got to look forward to. Then you die. Now, if it stopped there, I'd kind of go, oh, great. He is a pessimistic, bitter old man. But remember, keep on reading, keep on reading, keep on reading. And so he says, here's where he makes the, the switch. Remember him, God, before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed and the pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. What is this poem? Back in those days, you lived in the village. Center of the village was the well. And the women would take their pitcher from their home and get up early and get to the well. Then there would be a rope. And they would put, and at the end of the rope was another pitcher. And they would go ahead and put the pitcher down about 30, 40 feet to get the water. They'd pull it up, and then from that pitcher, pour it into their pitcher and take it home. And their family would live life-giving water. You know what he does here poetically? He describes our last breath of life. So he says, remember him when that rope, that silver precious cord that would bring up breath, when it's broken and the golden bowl at its end has been crushed so it cannot bring up any air anymore and the pitcher that you would have brought from home to get more breath it's shattered. You can't breathe. And the wheel, and the very wheel of the cistern is crushed. It's that. I go, boy, that's encouraging. Don't stop. No, keep on reading, keep on reading, keep on reading. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it Solomon remembers what his dad said when his dad wrote the poem even in his youth the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want he, 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 he makes me lie down in green pastures he, he guides me to the cool waters he guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. And though I walk through the valley of the shadows of death, I'm not going to fear any evil because he's with me. His rod, his staff, they comfort me. He prepares for me a table in the presence of my enemies. And when I get scratched, he anoints my head with oil. Oh, my cup is full. Surely goodness and loving kindness, mercy going to follow me all the days of my life. And then how does he end? 
and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Forever. Remember when Stephen in Acts chapter 7, bad day. He's being stoned to death. You ought to be cursing him. And he looks up and what does it say in Acts 7? And he sees the Lord standing at the right hand of the Father and asks them to forgive. This is why when Jesus was on that cross in Luke 23, when you're being tortured and nailed to a cross, mocked on either side, you don't blow smoke. And finally when the one thief finally got and tell the other guy, shut up. We deserve this. This guy hasn't done anything. And remember when he said to Jesus, Lord, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And what's the first word out of the mouth of Jesus? Today. No, 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 no. You die today. Your life is over today. Your body begins to go back to the dust today. Today, you will be with me in my kingdom. That night before Jesus was crucified and rested, and John 14, we have an eyewitness. John himself is hearing this and writes it down. And John 14, the first three verses, all these dear guys think that Jesus is going to beat up like Ephraim told us, beat up the Romans and set up a little Jewish kingdom. They're going to be the big dogs. Now he talks about being crucified and dying. They're all depressed. And that night before in John 14, Jesus looks at them. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, home, there are many dwelling places. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place a place, a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, you will be with me. This is a place. This is after this body goes back to dust. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, the body, this first body was an earthen body made of dust. And it was never created or designed, even though it houses an eternal soul, to live eternally. Look at what this body looks like in 71 years. Could you picture 300 years from now, me up here? At least part of me up here? No, this body has to die. I know you who are young, you look in the mirror and you go, that's me. Then I look in the mirror and I go, what in the world happened? Because I'm better looking than that. And as you get older, you begin to really detach and realize, I woke up one morning and these are my dad's hands. Oh my God, how did I get my dad's hands? I wouldn't even look at my arms because they're old man arms. And as you get older, you begin to realize there's something, my soul is me. And it's in this body that was designed for this first gift. But then he says, God's gonna give me, remember, in a moment, we shall be changed. And there shall be to our soul. Thousand, maybe a covering. Same kind that the 
that substance of angelic beings called pneuma. We don't know. But it's going to be a body designed to house an eternal soul forever and ever as based on their resume evaluated by Jesus Christ at the Bematos that they will then have positions of responsibility, positions of authority. I was asked a question yesterday from a mother of a little girl said, but won't we be jealous of each other if somebody gets more than we do? Jealousy is part of this body. I look at you young men and I am jealous. But when this body goes back to dust, jealousy's gone. And in the same way that we will all be serving Jesus as our king, but based on different positions of authority in different dimensions, in different creations, we cannot even imagine. But the point is, it's as Victor Hugo, who wrote Les Miserables, this is how he put it. For half a century, I've been writing my thoughts in prose and in verse. But I feel I have not said the thousandth part of what is in me. When I go down to the grave, I can say like many others, I finished my day's work. But I cannot say I finished my life. My day's work will begin again the next morning. The tomb is not a blind alley. It is a thoroughfare. It closes on the twilight and it opens on the dawn. I've been told in Indiana there is a tombstone. It's 100 years old. And the inscription is basically this. Pause, stranger, when you pass by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, you shall be. So prepare for death and follow me. Apparently a passerby came by and scribbled underneath that. To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. (laughs) You know, it comes down to this. There's nothing funny about death. Like I said, Jesus wept the death of his friend, even though in a few hours, he's going to raise him from the dead. Death is an enemy, Paul calls it, the last enemy. And because of the fear of death, we won't talk about it. We think we're going to live forever. You can't bring it up to others because they're offended. You're not too sure you ought to spend much time thinking about it. But what if the fact that you know how it all ends, and the fact is it doesn't end, and that there's a purpose for your hope, there's something to look forward to, And why do we get up and try to honor the Heavenly Father every day in our life by not being distracted by the evil and the results of men playing gods, by looking for the gifts of this first life and using those gifts to honor Him, building my resume of faithfulness that I might be faithful in a little thing so when I'm evaluated, He could trust me be faithful for great things we always talk about trusting God can you trust God what about God trusting you Again, let me finish that statement of Jesus in John 14 when he said let not your heart be troubled 
Remember? You believe in God? Believe in me. Again, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. Remember the King James, the older folks? Many mansions. Then we start fighting over mansions, so we go back to the original. Many dwelling places. For it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. How do we know he will come again? It's called Easter. When he said, because I live, you shall live also. And he says, and I will receive you to myself so that where I am, you'll be with me, to reign with me in the rest of the creation forever and ever. But then he adds one more verse. Verse six, for I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. Yes, Jesus can apply his sacrifice on whomever he chooses, on unborn babies, innocents of children. It's all through the one gift, the one provision for our forgiveness when the Father provided his Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. That's how much your Creator wants you back. As a son, as a daughter, the word to be justified, to be made righteous, all it means is to be placed in a right relationship with your creator. And what relationship did the creator want? It says, and God says in 2 Corinthians 6, I'll be the, your father, and you'll be sons and daughters to me. And we have this desire to want to honor God. And that's why in Romans 8, 29, Jesus was the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus took on flesh not just to be the provision for the forgiveness of our sin, but also to manifest for us how one who has a heart to honor God as their father lives their life. And that's why we're disciples of Jesus Christ. We're not disciples of the Holy Spirit. And we're not disciples of God the Father. We're disciples of Jesus Christ. We follow Jesus Christ. That's how we're going to learn as we learn from Big Brother how to honor our Father in heaven. And Jesus will evaluate our good works on how we honored him. So I leave you with the question. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He said it. No one comes to the Father. You don't want the end to be the end or the beginning of something horrible that we don't fully understand. People say it as well, God, how can a loving God throw people to hell? You do understand. When you tell somebody, would you like to spend eternity serving, loving, worshiping God as your heavenly father, for them going to heaven would be going to hell. Because if you have no use for God now, why do you think they'd want to spend eternity serving him? God doesn't send people to hell. People choose to go to hell. And they make that choice as it says in Hebrews 9, 27. It's appointed unto man once to die and after that your decision is confirmed. Then there's judgment. I'm begging you. It's not something you think maybe you, have you ever said, God, I need forgiveness. I've tried all kinds of things. I've tried to be good. I've tried to believe the right things. But God gave Jesus as the provision for our forgiveness. 
How do you forgive someone who never admits they need forgiveness? And it's only in this repentance. God, I'm a sinner. And I need your forgiveness. My God has been my life and my heart. And I want to surrender it to you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in my place. I receive that gift. I desire to be your child and to live my life honoring you as my heavenly father. From this day on, so that I might serve you forever and ever. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Because this is between you and God. Can you remember a time of repentance? If you say, I'm not sure, why not be sure? And even now, Father, forgive me. Forgive me my sinfulness. I surrender my life to you. Oh, Spirit, come within me and change me and transform me into a new person. And this I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. When you ask in the name of Jesus Christ, this is what Christ would will. This is the will of Christ and your prayer will be answered. Heavenly Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ and those who are struggling with life and death and thinking if they don't think about it, talk about it, it might just go away. But Lord, as Solomon reminds us, is that lion, no matter how great he was, he dies and we die just like him. And the body goes back to dust, but Father, that does not end it for us. And that's why we have the hope, the hope of eternal life. So Father, answer our prayers as we give our lives to you. And we do so in the name of Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen. okay, here goes. Jesus said, trust me. Jesus said, trust me. I have everything under control. God bless you. Thank you for the privilege.